Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Ramiro Beraleza, CEO and co-founder of Octeto, a Kubernetes development platform that's raised more than $18 million in funding. Ramiro, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, Brad, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here chatting with you today. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building, let's start with a couple of questions just to get to know you better. So can you walk us through a little bit more about your background? Yeah, I'm happy to. So I was born in Mexico, in Guadalajara. I grew up there, went to school there. And at the end of like my senior year, in college, I got recruited by Microsoft to join their, their HQ in, in Redmond. So right at the end of my senior year, I you know got my degree, packed my things, moved from Mexico to the U.S. and started my career at Microsoft over there, working at what eventually became Azure. So very, very exciting. Since then, I've been you know, working in tech. I mean, even before that, I always liked tech since I was a, a little kid. Video games led to computers, led to early forays into like programming crappy, you know, PHP plus MySQL websites. And that eventually led to a career in tech. For the last 10 years, 10, 15 years, I've been very focused on cloud services and developer tools. Kind of by chance, not really a plan, but I kind of fell in love with the power of cloud and especially the what I always call is the multiplying power of developer tools. How you build a tool, you make a team more efficient. They, in turn, can build more software and kind of get happy customers. And, and this is wonderful virtual circle. So yeah, that's been me. I, I moved to the Bay Area about 10 years ago after Seattle. I've been here working in startups, which is, I discover, another of my passions, early stage, building these new things. It's wonderful. And outside of work, you know, I've, I've become, quickly became Californian, which means I love, you know, eating burritos in the mission, hiking <laughs> in the weekends. The odd trip to the wine country and all those really cool things you can do here in the in the in the extended Bay Area. <laughs> nice. And you know, just to double click on something you said there earlier. So when you were growing up living in Mexico, did you you know, have plans to eventually move to the US and start a career in tech here? Or did that just happen to come up when you got recruited? So it was entirely by it was kind of a happy accident. I never had plans to move to the US. Actually, when I was in in college, funny enough. I was part of a more like the open source. You know, I was a big hardcore Linux user back then. And this was back when like Linux was really hard to use and you had to compile your own network drives and whatnot. But then at some point, I started to get into, funny enough, embedded and mobile development. This was like 2007. So before the iPhone, before Android, it was more around like embedded devices and, and early IoT. And that is what kind of started to take me closer to the Microsoft ecosystem because back then, Microsoft CE was the lead OS for embedded devices. So as I got closer to Microsoft, I started to learn more about the .NET platform, kind of got sucked into the whole Visual Studio, .NET, Windows world. And eventually at a, at a career fair, met some people from Microsoft. I thought that what they were doing was really cool. And yeah, they offered me a job. And, you know, when I was thinking about it, I still remember it was like, okay, yeah, why not? Let's do it for a year. I've been in the U.S. for a year. I get the experience and I can go 
back to Mexico and kind of follow on with my life. And yeah, that was like 15 years ago and I never, <laughs> never came back. <laughs> and did your family think you were crazy for leaving? No, my family was very excited because, you know, Microsoft is a very strong brand. So being able to work in this company that everybody knew, that was something my family was very excited about. And they were sad that I was going to be leaving. Mm-hmm. And I guess my, my parents understood it better than I did what it meant to, you know, leave your hometown and never, never really return. But both my parents are not from the part of Mexico I was born on in. They both moved to Guadalajara to do their, their studies and then they never came back to their original towns. Mm-hmm. So I guess they knew the same thing was going to happen to me. So <laughs> they were, they were sad. They were happy. They were proud. They're always been very proud of kind of seeing my, my career take off. And, and more importantly, that I'm doing the things that I'm like super passionate about. Yeah, that has to be every parent's dream, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's 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 one of the things of working in tech and especially in startups. It's, it's such a privilege that mm-hmm. you get to work on these cool things that I enjoy a lot. Like in my spare time, I write code. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's what I do all the time. So it's it's such a it's such a cool thing to be able to work on this. Nice, that's amazing. Now let's uh, let's talk through a couple of questions just to better understand, you know, what makes you tick as a founder. So first one for you: What founder do you look up to the most? And why? And it can't be Elon Musk. <laughs> That's a really good question and, and got me thinking because one of the things I realized is that I don't really look up to founders because I look up more to like teams. Because I do believe, and this is what I've learned through my experiences, is that great software, great tooling, great things, you, have, you need to have those leaders who inspire everybody. But I think it's, a, it's all about the team. So for me, like, there's these high-performing teams out there, like the team that built Slack, mm-hmm. the team that built like well the iPhone or pretty much everything else at Apple. I find them super inspiring and being able to create these high-quality experiences very fast and, and with like super high-quality intention. Those are the kind of things that I, I pay a lot of attention to these days. More than the individual is, is how these leaders create high-functioning teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was at Microsoft, I was working under, under Satya Nadella, and he was somebody that I think in the early days, people that worked on his organization, we kind of saw like, oh yeah, this guy is good. Mm-hmm. But now when I'm seeing him, and he's not a founder, but as a leader, mm-hmm. it's amazing what he's been able to do at Microsoft. Like, I don't think people realize how hard it is to get a company of that size to shift so much as, as that company has done over the past 10 years. And I was there at the early faces of this shift to Azure and cloud, but what they pull up is amazing. So that, those are kind of like the the people and the teams that I really mm-hmm. look up to. I've never been a big fan of like the whole founder myth of like, oh yeah, one founder pulling through and, and that's all you need. I think it's about building a great team mm-hmm. and doing amazing things together. Nice. Love that answer. Now, what about books? What would you say has had the greatest impact on you as a founder? You know, this can be a business book or it could no. just be a personal book that's had a big influence on you know, how you view the world. Right. So one of, one of the books that really changed a lot the way I, I see and I do things is, is this book. I forgot the author. It's called The Design of Everyday Things. And it's this book, when I think it's Nielsen or somebody else, but it's this book where they talk about, like the title says it, right? How design impacts so much of like our, our daily lives and how having tools with like the right ergonomics. And I'm using ergonomics in a very liberal sense. It's not just like physical, but tools that work well with your flow make your life substantially better. Like they had in this book examples, like a door where, you know, there's no visible hinges. Sure, it looks pretty, but you can open that door and you're going to like hit your head on the door 
or things like that. And that, when I read that book, I don't even know why I read that book. Uh, somebody recommended it to me. <laughs> and opened my eyes. I'm like, yeah, let's try it. Like, and, and I think a lot of the learnings of that book can be translated to everything we do. Software, you know, what we do at Software, this is what we do at Octero, they are tools. So if our tools don't make the lives of our users better, then we are failing in our mission. So, so that book kind of made me think a lot and like, okay, what does it mean to do like high quality software? What does it mean to it's make sure things are actually usable and not just, you know, correct? Like you could have a, a, a piece of software that is correct, that is performant, that does the job. But if it's not usable, if it's not well integrated with the rest of your user's life and not just with like with your own things, then it's not going to be useful and people are going to, in the best of cases, just ignore it. In the yeah. worst cases, you're going to have a, a material impact, a negative impact on their lives, which will be the worst. Nice. I love that. I'll have to check that out. I've not heard of that book. That sounds super interesting. Yeah, and it, it's a short book. It's, it's very old. I think it's from like the 70s or the 90s. But yeah, it's, it's short, sweet, and it's really good. I, I highly recommend that, that book to everybody who gets into like, especially, I don't know, I think the intersection of design and developer tools and kind of human-computer interaction is super interesting. I'm not that good at it. My co-founder, Ramon, is, is so much better at it, which is why I think I'm happy that we have this team where everybody brings something to the table, but he's really good at this. And, and yeah, it's, it's such an interesting topic. Nice. All right, well, let's, you know, let's dive into now what you're building at Octeto. So what's the origin story behind the company and what do you do? What's the high-level pitch? Right, so the high-level pitch with Octeto. Octeto, we, we have a platform that enables software teams to deploy cloud development environments with one click. Pretty much what happens is that you log into Octeto, you click the deploy button, and in a few seconds, you're going to have a copy of your entire production environment, but just for you per developer. So that way developers can be more efficient around running tests, validating their changes, and they don't have to do it in a single staging or a single production scenario. This came to be because this is a problem that I've had on every single team I've ever worked at. My first professional gig at Microsoft at Azure, one of the very first projects, funny enough, that I was involved in was this internal tool that we call Azure on a Box. And it was pretty much the same idea of Octeto, if, if you can believe it, so many years ago, which was, hey, developers, as we move to this world of complex cloud services, they need a way to replicate this because you can't run those things on your laptop anymore. So back then it was a VM, it was clunky, it was big. But you know, over the years, I've seen the same problem at startups, at Atlassian. So eventually, when my time at Atlassian was, was over, I started chatting with two of my, my closest friends. Pablo and Ramon, and we kind of, we wanted to work together. And we're like, hey, let's do something together. And then as we were kind of going over potential ideas, we kind of realized, hey, this problem that we've been talking about for years, everyone has it. We've all built tools that solve this problem internally to our teams at different companies. Why don't we just do it? And, you know, the three of us were having beers at, at this very iconic bar in San Francisco, Sidegeist. And that's when we decided, yeah, Let's do it. And then we all quit our jobs. Ramon was working at Google at the time. Pablo was working at Docker. I was working at Atlassian. And yeah, we quit our jobs. I moved to Madrid for a few months because that's where Pablo and Ramon live. And that's when we started the company. First open source project, eventually. Now um, a full-on global company with now 40 employees 
and 18 million plus of, of capital raised so far. So quite a journey. Sounds quick, but it's like four, I'm summarizing four years of, you know, ups, downs, side steps, <laughs> but, but definitely four years full of like, of like excitement and, and opportunities and, and growth and all the great things that come from working in, in early stage products. That's always the problem with origin stories, right? When you tell it, it makes it sound like it was this like short, simple thing. You guys quit your job and then boom, it was good to go. Funding's in the bank and you know, the product is ready. So I feel like that's what's always missed there is you know, the long journey, the emotional roller coaster, all that kind of stuff. It's true. It's something that I now, when I, when I talk to, because you know, when I was starting, a lot of like founder friends helped me out a lot and kind of like saying, okay, here's a one-on-one version of the study. So you know what you're getting into. So now I do that a lot too, because I, I feel like, it is important, and I think something that I've learned is it's crucial to celebrate the wins mm-hmm. because this emotional roller coaster you're talking about it's hard. It takes a toll on you if if you don't, you know, every small win, new customer, new round, new hire, new exciting breakthrough, breakthrough. All those things are super important to to celebrate because otherwise you're always kind of this down of like oh everything. Because if you look from the outside, it always looks like. At any stage, like everything's broken, nobody knows what they're doing. And it's not true, right? But from the outside, everything is so chaotic in startups and it's moving so fast that it sometimes it feels that way. So it's important to kind of tell these happy stories. But but yeah, I mean, for founders to be out there, it's, it has its ups, it has its downs. It's wonderful because you have a chance to work on, on these things that you really believe in. But yeah, I mean, this is four years sounds amazing. But, you know, there, there were moments when you're like, oh, are we working on the right thing? Or like if, if funding is not coming to you, like, oh, we're going to do, we're going to run out of money or we have no traction or we're building the right thing. So it's, but it's good to look at it, you know, with a bit of like more time and, and kind of from a higher point. And you see that it's all taking you, you know, slowly, constantly, but you can improve it and you're getting to your, to your milestones and that is super exciting. Yeah, I think it's like that meme that you get shared a lot of the uh, like the zigzag of like, I'm going bankrupt. Nope, I'm going to be a billionaire. I'm going bankrupt. I'm going to be a billionaire. And that was, you know, like a 24 hour cycle. Exactly. No, in the same day, you're like on the <laughs> highest. And then you're like, damn, but like this incident now, like nothing works and every customer is going to leave us tomorrow. It's, it's always like that. So you have to be very careful to take it with humor, celebrate, understand that there are certain things outside of your control and just, you know, do your best, have fun built a great team because you know my best friends from my adult life mm-hmm. have all been well my friendship has been created in this environment so like hey, you're working close with somebody you share this mission you share this vision that creates very strong bonds and that's like a really exciting part of working at startups totally nice well let's dive into market categories so when it comes to market categories how are you thinking about them is this a new category that's being created or are you disrupting and going into an existing category so in our case, this is a new category. Like I was saying earlier, this is a problem that has existed for a very long time around developer onboarding, developer experience, uh, velocity. But it's a problem that for the last 10 years was mostly ignored. Um, you know, the industry was very focused on, you know, production, DevOps, service orchestration, and, and developer experience, especially around, around cloud development environments, was something that, you know, some people, some people were building internally, but it was not a category. So. For us, this has been a process of category creation, a process of thought leadership, of explaining to the industry why this is a problem that needs to be solved and why it's, it's important to invest money into this kind of problem. So, so for us, it has been a journey of, of category definition, creation, and now 
as more companies join this category, now it's about becoming the market leaders. Nice. I love that. And what are you guys doing to build a new category or create a new category? You know, as I'm sure you've experienced, that's always difficult to do because you have to you know, first sell the category, then you sell the company. So what types of activities are you deploying and what types of tactics are you using to really help with that category creation process? Yeah, I mean, that, that is really tough. That, that's been something that it's not easy to do. But if you pull it off, like most of the great companies we see out there, like the multi-billion kind of home runs, Mm-hmm. They're all category creation. Because if you create a category and you own it, then you have pretty much an unlimited market ahead of you. So some of the things we've done so far, and a big thing is is what people call you know thought leadership, which is to pretty much not sell your solution to the market, but sell them on, hey, this is a problem. Um, one of our advisors at Y Combinator calls this the hair on fire problem, which I really like. Which is the idea that, hey, if your hair is on fire, you need water. You don't care if the water is dirty, if it's clean, if it's coming from a jug or from like a broken glass. Your hair is on fire and you need to put that fire off. So that's the first thing you need to do as, as a category creator is going to create this sense of urgency in your market on, hey, this is a huge problem and you have to solve it. And one of the things we learned is that it's very important to put this not in like tech words, it's not like, hey, you're building microservices and you need Octeto because you're having a lot of production issues. You have to put it in terms of like, hey, all this inefficiencies in, in your software process is costing you money because you're losing market share, because you're not able to innovate at the speed of your competition because of how bad of a software lifecycle process you have. So it's a nuanced difference, but being able mm-hmm. to put it in business terms, in terms, and this is something that, I think all, especially founders with like a technical background, like an engineering background, we all suffer from. And it took me years to kind of like get slightly better at it. Is pitching this not as a technological solution because that doesn't matter, especially as you get more into like enterprise, B2B. Mm-hmm. What matters is how is this going to improve the life of the business, whether it's the bottom line or is, is it like, am I going to save money with your solution? Am I going to be able to ship software faster? Am I able to retain my employees longer. You have to find an angle like this for people to kind of get this sense. That's why like storytelling is such an important skill for founders because you have to sell people on on your vision of like, hey, there's this better world. You need to solve this class of problems to get there. And oh, by the way, we solve that problem for you. (laughs) And and that's when you kind of get the angle. But it's for us, it was a lot of like public speaking, writing content. Like if you go on YouTube and you look up like Paolo or me, you're going to find talks of like five years ago, like very unpolished, but kind of trying to get people to believe in, in this problem of like, hey, building microservice applications is hard. You don't have access to environments. You need a realistic environment so you can go faster and get to market quicker. And that for us was kind of like what we've been working on. Even even now, a lot of what we do is still in, in that category of like convincing the world that they need to solve this problem and that it's a solvable problem. Because sometimes people are agree on a problem, but then they're like, yeah, but it can't be solved. So we're just going to ignore it. And, and that's what you're fighting against is, is this kind of status quo that the world is in because people don't like change unless they see a huge value on it. Totally. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we talk about that with clients is you need to agitate the problem and essentially market the problem. And the more you can make noise around the problem, then you become the logical fit to solve that problem. Your solution becomes logical. But I think a lot of people just don't have the patience to 
do that, you know, to talk about the problem without the product. That's always very difficult from what I've seen. Uh, it's super hard. And, and I think you touched on something key that is it requires patience because it takes a very long time. Like convincing people, it's like a long journey because you're going to start with one or two believers and then you're going to hit a plateau and then you have to kind of get to the next level and then you hit another plateau. And it's always like that. It's never, I mean, some companies get lucky, I guess, or they're really good at it. But for most of us, it's, it's never a straight, you know, like this diagonal lineup. It's always more like a step function, like a few. And sometimes it goes back up onto the side, but it takes patience. And, you know, it's an acquired skill too. I think it's something that it's important to, you know, read, see what others are doing because it's, it's an acquired skill. It's, it's not, some people are better at it naturally, but it's, it's an acquired skill. And, and by practice, everybody gets better at it. Totally. And that's something else that you touched on there too, that, you know, I've seen a lot, especially with your know, developers and engineers, they really have this mindset around the best product wins. And if you can build the best product with the, you know, the best capabilities and features, you know, that's enough to really break through the noise and, and stand out. But I think the reality is from like what I've seen is, you know, it's, yeah, you have to have a good product that is important, of course. But what you said there is, you know, it's all about storytelling. And can you tell a story around that product? That's what really breaks through the noise. Uh, do you agree with that, that storytelling is this mission critical skill? I agree. Yeah, 100%. That's something I've, I've learned kind of the hard way, because I, I used to believe, because you always you know, believe that, hey, the best, the best tool wins, the fastest one. But then if you kind of take a moment to analyze the market and you look at like the big winners and you see all these products that I will not name, but that everybody uses, everybody complains about them. You even feel like, hey, everybody hates this tool. And yet it's the market leader by a mile. So I, I think that your product needs to solve a problem and it needs to solve it well. That's very important. But I think the, the storytelling around why the problem that you're solving matters and how life is going to be much better for you when you use X product, I think it's super important. It's something that I think consumer marketing understood like a long time ago, how they sell you not on the product, but on the kind of this fantasy of like, if you, I don't know, if you're drinking this brand of water and, and water is, is super interesting because there's no difference of any of the brands I lost of like you. bottled water. It's all the same thing. But some of them, you know, Vian sells you on this vision of like, you know, this expensive, fancy lifestyle. Other brands sell you like this life adventure where you have to stay hydrated. I think it's something that people in our space in B2B and in DevTools needs to copy more. Because once you kind of get to those stories and, and how everything is better, it's a lot easier. And that's how you see that product matters, but mm -hmm. storytelling matters. And as you get bigger, distribution channels matter a lot. Who you're selling to understanding who you're selling to, which might not be who you're, who's using your product, all those things together mm -hmm. is what make for like super successful companies and products. Totally. Nice. Well, let's talk about traction and market adoption. So where are you seeing this tool being used and how much traction have you seen that you're okay with sharing? So something very interesting has happened with Octet, which is that, you know, we knew that this problem kind of existed around companies building modern software applications. What we didn't realize when we started the company is that, and we kind of knew this, but they didn't really understood it, was every company in the world is building software. It's crazy. Like any company with more than a few hundred employees in any market in the world 
is building software. Whether this is automation, you know, in, in Excel or low code, no code, or all the way to full on engineers, it's super interesting. So for us, like our user base is super diverse. Startups, Fortune one thousands, more traditional businesses, grocery stores, you know, if our customers, this is like a grocery store chain, e-commerce, it's everywhere. So it's, it's very interesting that this traction we're seeing across the board and, you know, kind of getting more into the tech, the adoption of cloud computing, microservices, Kubernetes is pretty much universal. It's massive. So in our case, we kind of, we've been very lucky to be part of this wave of like more companies adopting microservices, Kubernetes. They see the problems we solve. They see our solutions. So it's still early for us. Mm-hmm. Traction-wise, like it's, it's been amazing being able to see these markets. We have a very strong presence in the US, in Israel. We're building now some presence in Europe. And most of it has been, you know, word of mouth, content, bottoms up adoption of people just learning, hey, I have this problem. Oh yeah, this is company Octero that solves that problem. You should check it out. And that has been fantastic. It's it's super exciting to, you know, to see an entire company. And, and you go to watch so you can see some of our customers uh, there and, and kind of case studies, but to see entire companies using Octero, there's a company in Europe called Homa Games. They're a video game studio. They do a lot of the backend services. Like if you've used a, a mobile, if you played a mobile game, it's highly likely that you used Homa Games platform through this game. And they came to us and they're using Octero and they're cutting down their production issues by half. And it's one of those companies that I never thought would be looking for something like us. They're like, a, hey, a company doing platform services for like a mobile video game company. It's like, wow, that's weird for us, right? Mm-hmm. Or this grocery store chain in Europe that now uses use Octero for some of the software needs. It's, it's, it's super exciting. It's encouraging. And it makes you see the world in a different way. And this is, you know, on top of all the, you know, West Coast startups or the startup DNA companies that are always early adopters. It's fantastic. And do you have a sales org at all? Or is it 100% product-led growth at this point? No, we have a sales org. So we started the company more like founder-led PLG. Mm-hmm. But when we did our CSA, which was um, earlier this year, we realized that in order for us to start getting to like the bigger organizations, a sales team was crucial. I think something that people, and, and PLG is, is kind of very much in fashion right now, but I think that what I've seen, especially when you look at like more successful companies, that mix of PLG plus a sales team can really like accelerate sales massively because you have PLG to kind of get these early customers, get to know you, get to try your product, but then you layer the sales-led function on top of that. And that's what gets you from having one team in a company using your product to suddenly getting a thousand people in the same company using your product. And that's when you go from charging, I don't know, 10K a year to charging a million a year. And and that's what we, we're trying to build. Mm-hmm. We have a sales team now, people in the US, Europe, and it's it's been really exciting. And and also I think our product is part of like it becomes part of like the company's platform. Mm-hmm. So large companies like to have somebody they can talk to. You know, we have this great solutions architect, DT, and he becomes like a, a fantastic partner of any of our companies, of our customers, because then they know they have somebody they can ask. And same thing, my, my co-founder, Pablo, spends a lot of time, like we have all these Slack channels with our customers, and he spends a lot of time guiding our customers on how they can improve their developer experience, not just Octeta, but overall, 
because we, we see it in this really good position where we are kind of like by proxy part of the DevX team of a lot of different companies. So we kind of see this high level of whatever it's doing. And then we can take those learnings and share them with the rest of our customers. And they appreciate this a lot. And, you know, they, that makes them renew Octeto, that makes them expand. It makes the whole thing very sticky. So it has been super beneficial to us to do the PLG. And you can go to Octeto.com and try it out for free. But then as you grow, our sales team kind of starts talking to you, helps you understand how to grow the product. And that's how we're seeing a lot of like the bigger deals coming through. Nice. Love that. I love that advice too, because I think there's a lot of people right now who are just, you know, diehard PLG and they're really pushing this message to the market that, you know, PLG is the only way. And that just seems like kind of reckless advice. The logical advice that you know, I seem to be getting is it's going to be both, you know, both are going to be used. And, you know, of course, it's going to depend on the company. But in most situations, if a company gets to you know, the scale that everyone wants it to, they're going to need to have both. Yeah, yeah. I, agree. I think something people don't realize happened to us. PLG is very hard. Like, it's a very specialized skill. Also, PLG is not a good fit for every price point. Like, nobody is going to pay for, like, a million-dollar license before talking to someone. Like, nobody can pay with a credit card on, like, a sign-up flow for, like, even less than that, like, 100K. So depending on the product you're building, like, if you're building a product that's going to be sold for, like, low low price point and like a huge number of customers, then PLG makes more sense. If you're building something that's more high price point, less number of customers, then other ways work. And, and we're trying to do something in between. Mm-hmm. So we, we need to have a bit of both, which I think is what most early stage startups should do. Have the founders do more like sales-led, have some PLG, see what works. And once you find something that works, just go, go deep on that and do as much as you can until it stops working and then do something else. <laughs> makes sense. And as you know, you know, developer tool funding is just exploding over these last couple of years. If you had to say there was, you know, one thing that you've really done to break through the noise or one decision that you made that you really helped gain the most traction, what would you say that is? By the way, I'm super happy that there's this boom boom of funding because I don't know, people who are new to the space don't realize that 10 years ago, it was impossible to fundraise for a developer tools company. People thought like money is in operations and, and production, not on developer tools. So it's exciting to now be in this position of like, there's a boom and you have to rise above the noise. You're the uh, cool kids now. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm not getting one of those. I'm becoming one of those people who are like, oh, you know, kids these days have it easy. And I, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's not easy. But a lot of people, you know, YC and a few others, the Heroku founders, did a lot of the hard work to kind of make people understand how valuable this space got is. Mm-hmm. Some of the things, I mean, it's never easy, right? And with all this noise, I think what's very important will work for us. And, and this is the advice I give a lot of like my friends and founders to be is finding a niche. Because finding those initial like super fans opens a lot of doors. Open source to me is, is one of the best ways to do this. I believe strongly in open source. Octero is an open core company. Like our base is open source and then we have commercial on top. So open source helps a lot because you can create this audience of people who will talk about Octero, mm-hmm. who will tweet about it, who will write. And remember the first time I saw a blog post of somebody that I didn't know about how to use Octero, that was like super exciting because like, yes, more people are now looking at this. So that helped a lot. I think anchoring yourself to um, a bigger movement is very important. In our early days, like Kubernetes and kind of that wave mm-hmm. was what we were trying to like attach ourselves to. Like 
our early like pre-seed pitches was a lot about, hey, this year's thing is coming. Kubernetes is coming. Mm-hmm. People need new tools. And here we are. But I think the most important thing, and it took me also like many pitches to understand this, like hundreds of pitches, is that as a founder, you shouldn't try to convince investors about your problem space. You need to find, just like with customers in the early stage, you need to find believers. Like if you're in a new space, find those VCs or those angels that believe in the space because convincing somebody that the problem you're solving, not your solution, the problem itself is worth it, it takes a lot of effort. Like if I'm raising for like a crypto company, don't go talk to people who hate crypto. Just ignore them. Go and, and find those VCs who like strongly believe in crypto. The same thing with developer tools. For us, when we were like when we were able to raise our, our seed round, we found this like amazing um, partners, Root Ventures, Haystack, Uncorrelated Ventures. They all believe very strongly, like yes, something like Octero needs to exist. And then we have to do our, our work to kind of show them why it would be us and not somebody else. Mm-hmm. But and I also remember one of the first pitches that we did with um, with these funds. They were like, yeah, of course. I'm kind of surprised. It doesn't exist already. Are you sure? Sounds like such an obvious thing that should exist. And I was like, yeah, I know. That's why I'm doing this. And then <laughs> they did the diligence and they're like, oh yeah, this doesn't exist. Oh shit, yeah, we should do this. So that for me is, is one of the most important things is until you get like to the very late stages, pretty much until you run out of believers, mm-hmm. that's your best bet. Like forget about convincing people and, and find those who like get it. Get your partners, get your people to believe in you and 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 then that and then you'll go much faster. And then later, as you grow, you do have to do the job of like make that user base bigger. Mm-hmm. But what people I think sometimes forget is that in pre-seed seat, you don't need that many customers. You need to go for like a million customers. You need a good set of strong customers who believe your product, who actually use your product, because that's what you need to get the feedback and to gain the momentum to go to the next level of whatever that might be, whether you're fundraising or as a business. Love that. And zooming out here for our last question, if we look to the future five years from now, what would you say is the five-year vision for the company? Of course, I'm, as a founder, I'm super bullish on this space. I I have zero doubt that developers in five years from now are going to look back and say, why were you developing on a local machine? Like, why are, not, are you not using a cloud environment? To me, this is the next step on, you know, today when you start a new project, an open source project, you got to get help. Like nobody thinks about like, should I use source control or not? And then you set up CI and nobody questions, should I have test or should I have CI or not? The next thing people are going to do is they're going to have this cloud environment defined as a file on the repo. So for me, our vision is that in five years, everybody that creates a a dev environment, everybody that creates a repo on GitLab, any project, it's going to have source control, CI, and a cloud dev environment. And if we do our, our, our job well and we execute, that dev environment is going to be Octero by default. Nice. That's amazing. Unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time for today. This has been such a fun conversation. Really appreciate you joining. Uh, before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? Sounds, yeah, thank you for the time. I really enjoyed the conversation too. It went really fast. So you can find me on Twitter, rberlesa. Uh, it's my handle. I'm very active there. If you want to learn more of what we're doing at the company, octeto.com, O-K-T-E-T-O.com. We have the same handle on GitHub. We have a ton of open source projects there. So if any of you who are listening are interested, there's a lot of things there, 
VS Code plugins. Our core product is open source, so we're always looking for new contributions. And if anybody likes to talk about Dev Experience, Dev Tools, I'm I'm always there on Twitter. Awesome, sounds great. Well, thanks so much again for your time, and look forward to see you execute on this vision. Thank you, Brad. Really enjoyed the conversation, and looking forward to hearing uh, your next interview. Sounds good. Take care now. Keep in touch. Bye, guys. <laughs>